Well, over Christmas, we went to see family in my family. I uh, went to see family in Anderson, South Carolina. And one day I, I joined my brother, Nate, to see a new friend of his. And his name is Tyrone. And Tyrone is from Venezuela. And he and his two brothers have been living in Anderson for two months. And so in Venezuela, they were in the military, and, but they were being ordered to do things that they knew weren't right. And so they either had to resign their commission or they may have had to desert. I wasn't exactly sure, but in any event, the three brothers decided they needed to leave Venezuela. And so they took their wives and their children and extended family and immigrated to Colombia. And so the three brothers lived in Columbia four years, but they never felt comfortable there, in part because of the prevalent and open drug use around them. And so their aunt, the aunt of these three brothers, made it to Greenville, South Carolina. And she sent word back saying, you gotta come. And so in search for a better life for themselves and their families, the three brothers got all their money together, kissed their families goodbye, hopefully for a brief time, And the three brothers got their money together and set out walking to the U.S. And so they had to cross that Darien Gap, you know, that 60 miles of dense rainforest, steep mountains, vast swamps that that connect Colombia and Panama, the only land route from South to Central America. Very difficult, very dangerous. Their food ran out one day, and after a day not eating, Tyrone sat on a log and prayed to God, and he said, would you please give us some food? And at that moment, he put his hand up on the hill where he was leaning, and he felt something. He, he took it, and it was a little bag of rice. And he goes, I grew up believing in a God, but I never knew him to be present and personal to answer my prayers when I was in need. And so they continue on foot and sometimes on trains, sometimes on buses. They pass through the countries of Central America. Sometimes their Venezuelan documents served to let them pass. Sometimes they didn't. They had to pay for smugglers to get them around. Border patrol, they paid out a lot of money. They made it all the way to Piedras Negras, the northernmost area of Mexico, the busiest Mexican border crossing opposite Eagle Pass, Texas. And they were running to hop a train, and Tyrone fell. And he lacerated his leg, the lower part of it. And so his brothers had to stop everything. After all that wandering, after all that work, they had to stop everything and call an ambulance. The ambulance came and took him to the ER. In the ER, they had to amputate his lower leg. And so the officials of the hospital said, well, we've got to call Border Patrol. You've got to be deported. So his brothers came into the room picked Tyrone up eight hours after his amputation, carried him to the Rio Grande, carried him across the river into the United States. Well, they made it to the U.S. Border Patrol. And the Venezuelans get special consideration, so after five days, Border Patrol let them go free. The brothers hired an Uber and went to San Antonio, Texas. They paid the rest of their money to get a plane to go to Greenville, South Carolina, where they met their aunt. And by that time, Tyrone's leg was in terrible shape, so he has to be admitted in the hospital for two weeks to cover that infection. Well, in Greenville, the aunt introduces them to a Peruvian pastor who happens to be a friend of our families. The Peruvian pastor mobilizes the church to provide meals and clothes and a place to stay, even provide work. They move to Anderson, where my brother lives, 
And his church cares for them, and they start helping them out, giving them food, providing a place to stay. Nate takes on his medical care. A friend of his, the prosthetist, he gets involved, and they come up, and they're able to fit him with a new leg, such that when I'm there, I get to translate for that moment that he gets to put on a new leg, blown away that they would do that for him, and so quickly... And then a Guatemalan pastor and a Mexican pastor get involved and they start speaking the gospel to them and going to their house and teaching Bible studies and that's where we stand. And I just love thinking about that complex, windy story in relation to our passage today, three brothers on a long, dangerous route And then several churches, multiple believers, four different pastors from four different countries, all joining forces to show mercy and speak gospel to these young men. And we're not sure where they stand with the Lord at this moment, but but something is going on, and it certainly appears that Jesus' kingdom is, is moving in through his church. And that tends to be how he works. And you think of your life and all the ways that God has brought people together in your life. And our passage today speaks of Jesus sending out multiple missionaries so that through them his kingdom might move into a very needy area of Palestine. I just love this passage. So Luke 10, 1 through 16, let's read God's word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the day in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. 
The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And the grass withers, the flowers fade. And this is a hard word, but it's a good word too, and it endures forever. Thanks be to God. Well, you remember we've started a new section. We started it, uh, was that last week? Um, it goes from 951 all the way to 1928. It might have been two weeks ago. Um, anyway, sorry. 951 to 1928. It's this long section. It's unique to Luke. And it's called, it goes all the way to the triumphal entry. It's often called Jesus' journey uh, narrative. It's his travel narrative. And so we've said that the main point of this long section is that Jesus is discipling his 12. That's his principal purpose in this long journey. And so one of the main reasons Luke structures this section as a journey is to impress on our minds today, because he has you in mind, that our life as disciples of Jesus is a journey. It's long, it's dangerous, it's difficult, it's complex. But in this journey, we're learning to walk with Jesus in the way of the cross. That we would love the cross more and that we would carry our cross more even as Christ did. So recall the opening verse of this journey section is 951. It's an incredible verse. Jesus says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's a very strong statement. The idea is that nothing was gonna dissuade him or distract him, turn him, no detours. He had made his mind up because of his huge heart for you, his love and his tenderness and compassion for you, that he was going to Jerusalem, come what may, knowing that a cross stood there waiting for him. And he was committed to his mission of mercy to cover your sins on your behalf. And you see, in Christ, the disciple is one who starts to have this same kind of resolve. As Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, we set our face to follow Christ. And you know, to really learn something, you have to put it into practice. And we know that. We don't really get something until we have to use it. And so, an important part of Jesus' discipling is that he puts his disciples into ministry. He pushes them out. And so, funny story, but the Welsh preacher Jeff Thomas tells a story from Pastor Jay Adams in Philadelphia. He goes, so one Monday night, the phone rings in Jay Adams's house, Pastor Jay Adams, and he picks it up, and it's one of his members. And she's speaking to him in a whisper. He goes, Pastor, where does it say in the Bible that Jesus Christ is a son of God? He goes, why are you speaking in a whisper, Mary? She goes, there's a Jehovah's Witness in the kitchen, and he's winning. <laughs> and he says... But Mary, last night I, I preached about why we believe and confess that Jesus Christ is God. Like I preached it last night. And she goes, yeah, I know, but I didn't know I needed it then. 
So, so where did she find out she needed that truth? Well, right when she got off the bench and got on the field, it had to deal with it. And it's the case with us, right? There's all kind of truths you know that, that don't come alive until that moment of, of, of suffering or trial or ministry. We can flip that around and say sometimes when we're sensing a coldness and a, and a lethargy in our walk with God, the remedy is a new step of faith. And so Jesus sends this wider group of disciples out for two reasons. One is he is so abounding in compassion. And the other is he's gonna train his disciples. And so he sends them to the villages between Samaria and Jerusalem it's this called the Transjordan area, Samaria in the north, Jerusalem in the south, and on that eastern side, and on the western too, they're all over this area for about six months. And the area is inhabited by Jews, it's also inhabited by Samaritans. It's also inhabited by a lot of Gentiles. And so due to the mixed population of this area, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem largely neglected it. They overlooked it. They didn't spend a lot of effort on it. They were somewhat indifferent to it, looked down on it. And nevertheless, this is precisely the place that Jesus decides to spend his last year primarily focusing on this area of deep spiritual need. And, and I just love that. When he winds up his earthly ministry, He's focused on an area of great spiritual need that others are overlooking. And it un, un, unfolds to us the, the mercy of Christ for those that are neglected, that are in deep spiritual need. That may be you today. It also motivates us to say, is my heart like that? Do I gravitate towards those in deep spiritual need? And so Jesus appoints uh, or commissions 72 others, he says. It's, it's probably others than the 12 disciples. They may be involved too, but it seemed like even more. And so you got this wider group and he sends them out ahead of him into the villages where he hopes to go. And that sending out is a verb from the noun apostle. And so, an apostle is one who represents the sender. If you engage the apostle, you're really engaging the person who sent the apostle. Such that in verse 16, Jesus would say, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Powerful verse. Because Jesus is the Father's apostle sent with a commission here, and you and I are Jesus's apostles. It's this momentous truth that when you speak of Jesus in your homes, with your friends, in your workplace, you're representing Jesus and through him representing the Father himself. It's a staggering truth. People as weak as us could represent God towards others. And yet we ask, does this apply to all of us or is this a select group of kind of official apostles? And well, one significant detail is that Jesus selects 72 of them or some versions would have 70 of them. 
And just like the number 12 is symbolic, Jesus selects 12 apostles to symbolize the 12 patriarchs, the leaders of the people of Israel, we ought to think that 72 or 70 is also symbolic. And so in the Old Testament, the number 70 in the Hebrew and 72 in the Greek is the number of nations in the list of nations following the flood. It's all the nations of the world after the flood. And it seems that there's a reference back there. So Jesus may be using the number to anticipate the gospel going to all the nations. And also when Jacob's family migrated down to Egypt, you remember in Genesis, when they migrated down to Egypt, they were a family of 70 persons. And therefore, Luke may be using the number 72 or 70 to say it's not just the leaders of the people, it's all the people that are to be involved in this whole mission to the world. And that's definitely an emphasis of Luke's. All we have to do is go to Acts and see that. And what's kind of interesting is that this mission of the 72 is an, is an instance that, that's unique to Luke. Like He's the only one who includes it. Luke has a burden to show that the whole church is involved in the gospel extension to the whole world. It's a special burden that Luke has. So I wanna think of of three things about our commission, yours and my commission. And the first is the character of our mission, the second is the conduct of our mission, and the third is the consequence of our mission. So the character of our mission. So what's the nature of the mission that you and I have? We can learn a whole lot, we can't talk about all of it. But I just have seven quick things. The nature of our mission, what is it? So first, it's an aspect of our discipleship. Our mission is an aspect of our discipleship. When verse one says uh, he sends them out, the very people he sends out are the very people that have come to follow him. And so it's part of our training. Like them, we prepare for Jesus. We prepare for him to use our lives and our little words to open the hearts of people that he's preparing. And that tends to be the order, lives then words. There's a connection there between chapter nine and chapter 10, and it's very important. The Scottish pastor Eric Alexander says it this way, I really like it. We're followers who take up the cross before we're heralds who proclaim it because the basic evangelism is done with our lips, or our lives, not our lips. May it never be said of us, your life speaks to me so loudly that I cannot hear the words that you say with your lips. And it's the transforming nature of the disciple, a new life, a new approach to life that tends to attract people to the words of the gospel. It's an aspect of our discipleship. Those who follow Christ are those who herald Christ. Well, the second is, it's a harvest. That's how Jesus describes it. It's a harvest. And this means at least two things. One is, it's very desirable. Like, God wants a harvest. There's nothing more beautiful than than an abundant harvest for an agrarian people. It's precious to him. It's of immense value to him. I mean, it's not like cleaning up the trash. It's not something that's distasteful or he's indifferent about. He's been cultivating this harvest. He's been putting a lot of effort into this harvest. And it relates, I think, to that lush vineyard, that symbol of the people of God throughout scripture. It's something desirable to him. 
And along with that, it's a plentiful harvest. He's not talking about a pittance or, or just a few people or hardly worth the effort. Rather, it's this vast, immeasurable, abundant harvest. And so you might be here today and feel somewhat defeated. You may have loved ones that show very little interest. Our culture is moving away from respect for the church, from commonly accepted morality. The church may, in the estimation of some, be shrinking. The the nuns are growing. What does the future hold? And let Jesus is looking into his culture and saying, even now, the harvest, my rich harvest, is like plants laden with fruit. Go, go. Well, third, it's a harvest that desperately needs laborers. And so the the limiting factor isn't the harvest itself, it's the scarcity of laborers who gather it in. He says the laborers are few, they're few. And for an abundant harvest, why would there be few laborers? And it's just encouraging to see that Jesus wants a lot of laborers. And yet, if the whole church is to be involved in this glorious mission, then the whole church is to be laborers. And so in a way, we look at ourselves and say, are we a working church? Are we a laboring church? Well, I like how some churches are, are ceasing to use the word membership and are instead using the word partnership. Both, both are you know, translations of a, of a Greek term. And yet partnership may convey more of an active sense. We're working together in the kingdom. So Jesus suggests here that we may have a reluctance to step in. And he asks us to pray that God would send out laborers. It's a great prayer. Yet the word is different from the first word, sin. This word means cast them out or or thrust them out. I mean, in some contexts, it's used for casting out a demon, like cast it out. And so the idea is like, sometimes we don't want to be involved, you know? Sometimes I don't want to be involved. It gets sticky and uncomfortable, and I I like comfort. The three would-be disciples in the previous section fleshed that out. There's always a plausible excuse. They have plausible excuses. And Jesus says, you're laborers, you're laborers in something that's, that's grand and glorious. Well, the fourth is, it's a harvest that God is sovereign over, and thanks be to God for that. He's called the Lord of the harvest, great name and title for God. So, so he's in control of the harvest. He's in charge of, of thrusting out laborers into it. And it's uplifting to us because the weight of the world is not on our shoulders. It, it doesn't depend ultimately on us. It's, it's his harvest. We get to serve in it for him. It's overwhelming otherwise. We can be filled with anxiety otherwise, but he's the Lord of the harvest and we know what that Lord's like. We know the grace and the kindness and the generosity of our Lord. We know he's committed to the covenant We know he pursues sinners. He responds to prayer. Nothing is too hard for him. He's the Lord of the harvest. Fifth, it's risky. It's just risky. He says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. The laborers are for you, so let me tell you how great it's gonna be, he says. 
I'm gonna send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. If you didn't have many sign up before, you're probably not gonna have many sign up now. A lamb is utterly helpless, like they can't fight, they can't run, they get scared, they're weak, they can't climb a tree. I mean, they're, they, they can't do anything, they're sitting duck. And yet when we think of Jesus talking like that, it, it's comforting to know that he knows the danger, he knows it. He warns us of it. It's even more comforting to know that he styles himself the good shepherd and a lamb is always safe around his shepherd and our protection is in our shepherd. It makes us lean on our good shepherd. He takes care of us even when it seems that everything is dangerous and risky. And and the biggest risk in our culture is this, these good sounding things that undermine everything about the word of God. That I would be in the center of my reality, that my needs and my desires have to be met. And that they can be styled and described so positively, but it's wolves. But Jesus says, I'm protecting you even in the midst of that. Well, the six is we go out empty handed. And um, so they carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. And we ask, so you're gonna send them to unknown villages and they take no provisions. It doesn't really make sense. And yet this is a special short-term mission trip. Later in chapter 22, just before the cross, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, okay, carry a knapsack. But the idea is that either way, whether you carry provisions or not, the truth underlying it all is, I want you to be utterly dependent upon me and to trust me. Will you trust me? to provide for you. And that's about as basic as we get. Will you trust me to take care of you? Because we go into personal ministry with others, we go into sharing our lives with people and building relationships with people and speaking the gospel message with people empty in ourselves. And that's what makes it come alive. It's, it's God's grace alone that saves us. We don't come with a superior record, with greater inner fortitude, with, with heightened wisdom. We go empty. We don't go with our own resources. We rest in me to provide what you need, the words to say, the doors to open. Know that you're empty, and therefore you have something. Well, the seventh is that it's urgent. It's urgent. Like they can't even greet people on the road. And for a southerner, that'd be really odd. But he's saying, don't get distracted. Don't get held up. Eastern people have these elaborate greetings. I don't know how long they spent, but they could spend a long time greeting one another. He's like, focus, focus. Well, there's a few things about our, the character of our mission. Well, what about our conduct of the mission? Conduct of the mission. So what are we supposed to do? Just three quick things. Well, the first thing, bedrock, the most important thing, he just says, would you pray? Would you pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest so that the harvest would be gathered in, my precious people that I love so much? Would you pray? Would you pray for your unconverted friends and unconverted family? Would you pray for the nations? Would you lift them up? Would you pray that more pastors rise up? Would you pray that more men and women would live with integrity in their vocations, would take care of their children, would shepherd their families? Would you raise up 
more laborers in the harvest field. Pray. Pray Pauline prayers that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Would you pray? And we pray to a God who styles himself the Lord of the harvest, who wants more laborers in his harvest field than we do, and he'll accomplish it. I remember as a freshman at Ole Miss when I was involved in Campus Crusade, and my Campus Crusade director says, do you have a top 10 list? I said, what are you talking about? Do you have 10 people that you're praying for every day? And it, it, it moved me so much that you'd be so intentional about the people in your path to pray for those opportunities. Well, second, we seek fellowship. We seek fellowship. And so they don't have anything, but they're supposed to find a person of peace and move into their houses. And we see that the mission is not a solo endeavor. It's the mission of the church. They're supposed to join in fellowship, encourage one another, and think through their city together. They're supposed to eat what's put before them, become part of the family, not hop from house to house, upgrading through their time. They're supposed to know and develop deep relationships. And that's how God was going to provide for them. And so they arrive to the house and they say, peace be to this house, which is the customary greeting of shalom, you know, God's peace and well-being. But in the context of preaching the gospel, it's greater than that. It's, I'm bringing you the peace of God. And you get to receive it as you receive me. That peace of God, that shalom, that you're gonna be right with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I bring the peace, you're gonna accept God's gospel of peace and you're gonna become a son of peace. They're reproducing disciples in these homes as their bonds of fellowship get richer. Beautiful. And third, that fundamental thing we do, we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near you and it's come near you through us because I represent Jesus who represents God. The kingdom of God comes near people through you. And so they do works of mercy, they cast out demons, they heal people of their infirmities. In one sense, it just shows the compassion of God, or in another sense, the sign of the greatest work of compassion, and that is the gospel itself. That in the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, you could be washed clean of your sins. Clean. And you could be clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. And you could stand in all the value and the dignity of the true king, because he's come and he's coming again, and he's the king who's bringing in a new world and letting you be a part of it now. And he's the king who's gonna conquer by going down to the depths of the curse for us and conquering hell, death, and sin by taking it into himself. Let me introduce you to this king who's revolutionizing this world and saving his people. Well, what's the consequence of this mission? Third, consequence. So how big a deal is it, the gospel of the kingdom, and what kind of significance is this mission? How momentous is it? How consequential, how critical? And we see that it's everything here. It's, it's the most important thing. And so what, what Jesus indicates is that God's judgment is certainly coming. 
It's coming. God's gracious remedy is that we can avoid that judgment by receiving a king who took the judgment in our place. But that's, that's the remedy. And so the gospel is everything. And so if a town rejected the gospel herald, the, the herald was to perform a symbolic warning of judgment. He wasn't to call down fire from heaven as they did wanted to earlier, but they enact a solemn warning, which is really a gracious warning. They're to stand in the middle of the town and shake the dust of their shoes off. And what that meant is that your town is just so polluted and defiled in sin, I, I can't have the dust on my, on my shoes because you need a redeemer and you've rejected your redeemer. It was a solemn but gracious warning. It was like, don't reject your opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. And then there's this principle that he says it would be more bearable for Sodom on that day than for you. And that's a jarring statement. I mean, Sodom is infamous for sin. All kind of sexual immorality, all kinds of violence, destroyed in a moment by God, and yet these towns that would hear the gospel proclaimed and would be indifferent to it or reject it, that their judgment would be more severe than Sodom. Which means that the worst sin in God's sight is to despise the Son, despise the offer of the gospel, to treat it like it doesn't matter. The worst sin, if you want to categorize all the sins, he's saying the very worst one is to hear it and dismiss it. And therefore, every time we hear the gospel is a moment of response because that's it. The principle in scripture is the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. The, the fact that we live under the word in Mississippi and Tupelo means that we have greater responsibility to respond and lay our lives open to Jesus. And the other towns, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum are the same. I mean, they were Jesus' home base. They enjoyed Jesus' ministry. They welcomed him. But it's really scary to think that it was all said and done. Jesus said they rejected me. They enjoyed my presence, but they didn't want me. And it's scary for a country like ours that would enjoy so much influence of the gospel in our land, but would we reject? Jesus said it would be better that... They think they would be lifted up to the heights, but they would be brought down to Hades itself. And so he's looking at us and saying it's incredibly consequential. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to receive. Would you take in the ministry of the word today? And so we, the whole church, are commissioned to mission. It's this very high and holy something to give ourselves to we look at the consequence of it, the conduct of it, and the character of it, and we're motivated to, by Christ to be involved in a deeper way. And it's something that a local church gets the opportunity to debate and think through and pray through. But we take in all of that character, all of that conduct, and recognize that it's the most important thing we do in everything we do. May God add his blessing. Amen.